Have you had anybody ask for permission to do a voice clone of the mayor yet? <laughs> interestingly, uh, we <laughs> interestingly there was some interest in doing that as part of a demo to the U.S. Conference of Mayors, right? Uh, and it's it's not quite as push button uh, as one would think, but yes, it definitely was proposed. Hey, why don't we do this? And and while I thought it was an amusing demonstration, it it ultimately didn't come to fruition. If the use of generative AI in the workplace didn't seem complicated enough already, just consider what it means for big cities and other government entities. The implications of common AI problems, such as algorithmic bias and attribution of intellectual property, are magnified in the public sector, and they're further complicated by unique challenges, such as the retention and production of public records. Our guest this week, Jim Loader, Interim Chief Technology Officer for the City of Seattle, grappled with these issues as he and his team produced the city's first generative AI policy this spring. And he recently gave a presentation on the topic to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We last spoke with Jim Loader back in 2014 in a radio studio when this podcast doubled as a broadcast show in the Seattle region. Of course, much has changed in the time since we connected and recorded virtually this time. Jim Loader, it's great to see you. It's good to see you. Good to see you again. It's good to be uh, back on the podcast version of EGuire. Give us a sense for what you do in your role as chief technology officer on an interim basis for now. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, serving in this role for about two years now, and the city of Seattle, the, the Seattle Information Technology Department, which I'm the, the director of, is responsible for all IT services for the city of Seattle and its um, its employees. So we manage everything from the network up the stack to desktop and and uh, uh, smartphone applications and everything in between. We've got about 650 employees uh, serving the 13,000 workers of the city of Seattle in departments, obviously ranging from uh, a major regional electric utility uh, to the animal shelter, to the transportation department, to the office of housing all over the place. 35 to 40 distinct lines of business, depending on how you count them. So that presents a challenge in, in uh, securing and providing a consistent IT experience, but we're up to the task and people seem to think we do a good job of it. I'm curious how much of the workforce at this point is back in the office? How much is working from home? What's it look like these days? Within our department, I would say we had roughly anywhere from 25 to 30% of our staff back in the office within a couple of weeks of the pandemic starting. And that's just because of the nature of the work that we do. So we very rapidly put precautions in place back in the day when we all thought we had to sanitize groceries and, and, and books and everything we touched. We put distancing and uh, personal protective equipment measures in place for the staff who returned to the office. And they were responsible for the physical logistics of enabling the rest of the city to make the pivot to working remotely for at that point, of course, we didn't know how long that was going to be. So we were gearing up for a couple of months. And in some cases, there are folks working for the city who still are working primarily at home. Recently, I'd say within the last year, we've uh, been bringing the workforce back to the office. And the expectation is people work about two days a week in the office, you know, unless there's just no really good reason for them to be there. 
we try to give people a good reason to be there. We try to give people opportunities to connect and socialize and collaborate in person where it makes sense. But uh, a lot of IT work can be done remotely, and we feel it's a benefit or a differentiator for our workplace to be pretty flexible about where people can choose to work from, and we try to support that. Jim, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and catch up is that you, along with CTOs at other cities, but you in particular have been in the lead on this, even nationally, have been grappling with the implications of generative artificial intelligence, much like, of course, business leaders around the world these days and workers around the world. But you've been looking at how to implement and how not to implement, frankly, generative AI in the city. And you recently gave a talk to the US Conference of Mayors on this topic using Seattle as a bit of a case study in how these kinds of policies could be set. I'd actually like to start with the positive. <laughs> what kinds of use cases can you envision municipalities, large cities, workers within those organizations using generative artificial intelligence for? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think my brain tends toward dealing with the risks first and then dealing with the use cases. But you know, in parallel, we have been thinking about, okay, what is this tech good for? And, and how can this benefit the city's mission to deliver services effectively and efficiently to residents? We've had some interest among communications teams throughout the city in using generative AI as a way to rapidly produce first drafts of communications, of reports, of information that they need to get communicated to their constituents, as well as to do the work to summarize lengthy government reports and documents to make them more digestible for people. So those are I think fairly basic use cases that we are trying to leverage to understand, do these use cases manifest the risks that we've identified in significant ways, or are these suitable and appropriate for government use? There's also a lot of interest in the language translation capabilities. Current translation software utilizes a form of artificial intelligence already. We have that embedded in our website, but for some significant communications and content, we tend to pay professional translators to produce translated versions so that there's less of an opportunity for ambiguity or misunderstanding for those communities. So there's, I will say there's interest in seeing if the new breed of technologies produces better results than say the ones that we're already using. But there's also concern that professional translators do do a really good job and in some cases, it's pretty critical that the communities of folks who are not English speakers get that information, and we have to make sure that it's um, it's trusted and high quality. So I, I'd say, again, the, the communication staff, fine. First drafts, great. There's definitely going to be a human involved at some point in the, in the editing process. Translation, especially when you have people who don't speak or, or read the language, doing the quality testing and the vetting of that. It's a little iffier, and I think the staff who are looking at that understand those challenges and, and are looking at it appropriately. But those are two off the top of my head, and, and I, I think there may be others, but those are two that I'm aware of. We're working with those staffs uh, directly right now. I got a chance to see your slides for the presentation that you gave in June to the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and 
I thought that the four bullet points you had in this area were really instructive. You outlined some specific vetted uses that people could consider, and we'll get into the vetting in just a second because that's important when we're talking about the precautions and the risks, which we'll discuss. But you said data, identify patterns, don't make decisions. Writing, produce summaries of reports and legislation, don't write them. Search, query, and interact with city-controlled data, not general data, and then coding. Obviously, this would relate directly to folks, especially in your department. Mm -hmm. Help find bugs or suggested optimizations. Don't write software. Frankly, I think those principles are almost like a blueprint for the safe use of AI right now, the safe and appropriate use of AI if you're not in a position to be more ambitious in whatever you're doing and if you're facing risks. I mean, those four principles could really apply to a lot of different industries right now. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I think that was what we were going for, were some general principles. And I should note that we, in parallel to this, we do have a policy development team that is comprised of uh, or, or composed of both internal city staff and some of our external partners who are working to develop out a more fully fleshed out version of this. But yeah, we, I, I think, are always interested when a new technology emerges to understand, okay, what is new and novel about this technology that isn't covered by existing policy? And the best crafted policies are the ones that are fairly universally applicable to multiple use cases, even those that, that haven't been contemplated. I think about the SEC regulations covering securities and how the push and pull in the crypto community is is happening right now. The SEC saying it doesn't matter that these laws were written in the 1930s. They were written to apply to use cases that we hadn't conceived of yet. And your stuff certainly looks like a security. So oh, it applies. And of course, the crypto community has a different take on that. But I, I think that's kind of what we're going for is if you're copying and pasting code from GitHub or from Stack Overflow, you're going to look at that code. You're going to vet that code. You're you're going to you're going to modify that code to fit your software. You're not just going to take it and build an enterprise application based off of it. And this kind of gets into one of the areas of why the technology presents new and novel risks, which is in that example, if a developer goes out to let's just say Stack Overflow in general and finds an example of code that she wants to use to solve a particularly thorny algorithmic problem or, or whatever, there's a community there that is vetting and reviewing and looking at that code. And there are moderation methods to remove that code if it doesn't work or if it's written with malicious intent. You know, so there's there's trust in the community that, you know, there's trust that comes with that community. There's also transparency because you're looking literally at source code. I think when we look at these generative AI tools, the trust, the community, and the transparency really aren't there. We don't have insight into the data layer. We, we don't have insight into the foundation layer of these applications. We, we don't have access to the product layer and understand how they're being implemented. Nor is there a community, a trusted community, involved in the production or the vetting of those tools. It may not introduce a new categorical risk, but it raises the level of risks that may already be there when people are sourcing content from a third party or from an outside source. One last point on these four principles, I would call them, before we get into those risks. And I agree, there's a much richer conversation we need to have about those risks and the transparency and intellectual property. But I think the reason these resonate with me is that they 
contradict the common tendency in the world right now to be very binary about AI. Either it's good or it's bad. Either you're doing the work entirely on your own as a human, or you're handing it over to a robot to write your essay or your legislative report. And this whole concept instead of using AI as an assistant really appeals to me because there's lots of shades of gray there. And from my perspective, the ability to see benefit without giving up control. Yeah, that, that's a really good way of putting it. I think you're right. One of our goals in, in establishing these uh, guidelines and these principles is to try to identify acceptable use cases. And I think that there are two components of hype, if, if you will, when a technology like this emerges. And the first is that it is generalizable, that this, this is a technology that can do anything and do it well. And we see that we've seen that in other hype cycles. There was a time not too long ago where every other vendor call I was getting was trying to tell me how blockchain can be infused into everything that I do. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that it was a general solution to common problems. You got a problem with voting, you've got a problem with personnel transactions, the answer is blockchain. And, and I think when generative AI came onto the scene or is still on the scene, we heard a lot of that too. So that, that's, a, that's a common element of hype. The second is wide adoption, that this is a technology that everybody will be using. So not only using it for everything, but everybody will be using it. And that's another thing that I think maybe is not so applicable in a city government context, but just in general, we have to question that. And you know, may, maybe it's not. I mean, the example I go to for that is 3D printing 3D printing is a really cool technology. There was definitely a push to try to get 3D printers in everybody's household until I think, you know, market adoption was such that we realized a really, really small percentage of people <laughs> need to be using this. And for those people that can use it, it is pretty phenomenal, but not everybody needs to do rapid prototyping. So I think sometimes the the hype cycle just dies out on its own, on its own but sometimes it, it's kept going by motivated parties. And it's something that I think informs our decision-making in the city, which is, okay, we're hearing a lot about this. We know that a lot of our internal clients are going to be interested in using this, but our job is to try to help people figure out what is it good for and maybe what is it not good for. And, and that's where those principles are really coming from. So let's talk about some of the risks and the concerns right after this break. You're listening to GeekWire and we'll be right back. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop from GeekWire. My guest this week is Jim Loader. He is Interim Chief Technology Officer at the City of Seattle. So Jim, these principles that you and your team came up with for the use of generative AI inside the city, which are being looked at by other cities as a potential model, start with this understanding or at least this acknowledgement of the potential for risks and concerns what are the biggest out there? You've alluded to some of them, transparency, intellectual property. How would you sum up the risks that 
are faced when a city looks at implementing different forms of AI? You know, one, one thing I'll point out just in general is that for every new technology, and, and by that I mean new to the city, so not something that we've previously looked at or adopted, the city, our, our department performs a risk and impact assessment. And that can be for a new browser plugin and it can be for a new permitting system. The questions are a little bit different, of course, in every use case. But over the years, we've refined that because the technology is constantly changing. The regulations and laws that we work within are constantly changing. And our awareness and our knowledge of how things work and, and where risks can manifest themselves change. So with generative AI, I'd say it's uh, not unusual that we would sort of insert ourselves into the process and ask people to get approval by IT before they try to use a tool, a generative AI tool to conduct city business. And that's just a general precaution, a general way that we conduct our business in the city and protect our resources and assets. The intellectual property part is, I would say, relatively high up on the list. And the risk is there. Certainly, we don't want to inadvertently take somebody else's property and represent it as our own or publish it as our own. When people pull pictures from the internet and put it up on our website, we have issued guidelines and offer training for people to help understand when do you have to cite sources, when can you use um, you know, uh, Creative Commons licensing, and, and all of those different things. So this, this is no, ex no exception, except that we don't really have great ways of determining the provenance of data that these tools produce. That's, I would say, a high risk just because it's very difficult to avoid it. And the second, I think, which is pretty unique to the public sector is this question about public records. So as you probably know, and, and I hope as most of your listeners know, everything that we do in the city is subject to the state's Public Records Act. There are very few exceptions to that Public Records Act. And as a result, everything that any city worker produces could be considered a public record and needs to be managed and stored and kept for a particular period of time and then disclosed if somebody wants to wants to ask for it. And again, there are very few exceptions to that. So one of the most common conversations we have with city staff who come to us and want to start using a particular software tool is to ask them, what is your strategy for managing the records that you are producing using this tool and for allowing your public disclosure officer to get access to them when they are requested? And it's not a hypothetical consider, you know, we've already had a public records request for any and all uses of city employees interacting with chat GPT that that's already dropped in, into our public request queue. So it's not something where we can't use the software, right? We wouldn't be able to use anything if that was the case, but there has to be a plan. There has to be a plan for retaining the prompt language that somebody types into the tool, the outputs that it produces. And obviously, if you type something into software and it gives you nonsense and you discard it, that's not a public record. I mean, that's that's something that doesn't feed into a city processor or influence a decision. But differentiating what is a record and what isn't is a fine art, really. We just took the opportunity to remind people this tool, like any other tool, needs to be managed with that in mind. Uh, and I would say it's a pretty high risk. Uh, we've, you know, been in the paper lately about some public records management challenges that we've had over the years that we don't want to be back in the paper again. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of my former colleagues have been on the other end of that now with the, the daily paper in Seattle. And so I, I know it's a challenge. Um, 
implicit in this, as you're saying, is that these uses need to be vetted. It's not okay for a city employee to just sign up for ChatGPT, for OpenAI, and just go to town. They need to get permission first. Yeah, and, and we hope to get to a point where our acceptable uses and, and potentially list of prohibited uses is generalizable to the degree where everybody doesn't have to keep coming and asking us for permission every time they want to do something. And, and that's the process that we're working through right now, is to give clear general guidance to staff to say these tools in general are acceptable and they are acceptable to be used in these ways provided you have these data handling and, and, and other types of compensating controls in place. That's what we would love to drop onto the city and say, here you go. It's the soup to nuts A to Z manual for how to responsibly use generative AI in the city. It's just simply not sustainable for us to evaluate every single use case. But as we are learning along with everybody else about this technology, it's pretty helpful and instructive for us to have those conversations with people and understand how do you want to use this? Oh, we hadn't ever thought about using it that way. Let's let's walk through that. Let's do a thought exercise and ask some what if questions and see if we can develop some general principles out of that. Have you had anybody ask for permission to do a voice clone of the mayor yet? <laughs> interestingly, oh. uh, we <laughs> interestingly there was some interest in doing that as part of a demo to the U.S. Conference of Mayors, right? <laughs> uh, and it's it's not quite as push button uh, as one would think <laughs> at this point, and so the idea of having to source as much audio data as we could from the mayor and, and do all of that work, it quickly became uh, unfeasible. But but yes, it definitely was proposed, hey, why don't we do this? And and while I thought it was an amusing demonstration, it, it ultimately didn't come to fruition. So Mayor Harold didn't have the two plus hours of time to sit in the studio and, and read aloud from a script. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, go through all the phonetics and, and everything else. Yeah. yeah, no, we couldn't we couldn't schedule that time with him, unfortunately. It's it's funny. We've been through this on our own on the podcast about a month ago, and there are some off-the-shelf solutions that for some people will come relatively close, but Mayor Harrell has such a distinctive voice. I can imagine I that it. no AI could replicate it with uh, just a few clips of audio. But it's interesting because it does get into this issue of deep fakes and the question of fake videos. And obviously that's a huge issue, especially for official government communications. And this was listed among the novel risks and concerns that you put into your presentation to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Correct. And and I think that it's pretty, it'd be pretty straightforward for us to declare that to be a prohibited use case among city workers <laughs> yeah. uh, to use the technology <laughs> in that manner. Um, but you're right. It, it is a concern that we and every other, you know, government entity and corporate entity would have about our image being tarnished or, or our reputation being damaged or misinformation being sent out under our name. You know, we've already had that happen to us on Twitter and Facebook. We periodically had to stamp out fake accounts that are purporting to give out information um, on behalf of the city. And, you know, we've added certain tests and certain indicators to our public website and to our social media accounts uh, as, as we can to help people differentiate true sources from fake sources. Obviously, that's become way more complicated on Twitter now. But, uh, you know, I think we, we do, the main city account does have the gray checkbox for 
vetted government officials. So, um, so there's that, but yeah, there was a pretty robust discussion actually at the conference of mayors regarding digital watermarking and the possibilities, both for attribution purposes, both so that text content or, or any kind of content that's produced by these tools can somehow be tested or determined to have been generated by AI, but then also uh, as a way of testing and, and trying to suss out deep fakes. And I, I don't know enough, frankly, about that technology to know it's possible. But the example that was given was when I believe Adobe Photoshop incorporated some watermarking technology to prohibit currency counterfeiting back in the day, where un- unless you knew exactly what you were doing, you wouldn't open up images or accept scans of U.S. currency. And then, of course, in the in the recording industry, you know, there's been all kinds of attempts to protect file duplication, but you know that that sort of technology can be used for other types of purposes. You know, with generative AI, again, I don't know if that's possible, but that was a topic that got brought up at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and and seemed to be it seems to be on everybody's mind. Jim, if I remember correctly, the city of Seattle is a heavy Microsoft enterprise user. Is that still the case? Yeah, it's it's our main productivity suite for every city employee has Office 365 on their desktop, and we use a lot of the backend uh, tools as well. I bring that up because Microsoft is rolling out in preview form right now, in private preview, a lot of integrations with OpenAI's technologies, including ChatGPT integration into Microsoft 365, already publicly in the Edge browser, it's very easy to access a chatbot that taps into OpenAI. And I wonder, just even from an IT controls perspective here, what are you encountering in terms of the ability to stop somebody from using that kind of tool just by clicking on the little Bing icon in their browser? Yeah, we... We haven't prohibited that. The, the interim policy that we released does state that if the technology is incorporated into commonly used tools like search engines, just go ahead and be careful and make sure that the, the guidelines that we've issued apply. But when the, the OpenAI-based technology does become more baked into the standard productivity tools that everybody uses every day, and I, I'll note that governments uh, tend to get those feature sets much later than commercial entities. So it's in it's in private preview now. It'll get rolled out to commercial tenants first, and then government tenants only after. I mean, we we've got time. Is is my point? But I, I, you know, I've been pretty open in expressing uh, these concerns to our Microsoft team. And frankly, I mean, one of the things that we have to acknowledge and really dig deep into is that this is the first or certainly the most significant situation I'm aware of in which Microsoft has licensed somebody else's technology to incorporate into their products as opposed to just buying them out or or developing it in-house. And while there may be components of the technology of of Microsoft products that are based on, you know, some open source libraries and, and whatnot, you know, this is a pretty big gamble for them, I would say. And that relationship where we as their customer don't have a contractual or, or relationship with OpenAI, and yet that technology is being exposed to us through this technology, it introduces some interesting responsibility and liability challenges that I don't think that we've encountered before with Microsoft. So 
again, I haven't gone too far down that road of thinking because we we do have some time before we actually have to confront it. But it's um, it is part of the issues that the policy team that I've spun up is looking at, and part of some early conversations we've been having with Microsoft. I think Microsoft, to be fair, with that, their responsible AI commitments are pretty strong, and those have been around for a while. Those were not just suddenly called into being when they reached this deal with OpenAI. Microsoft's been thinking about this long and hard for a long time. My questions are more in the vein of how are you applying those principles to a third-party technology that you don't directly control? How has that changed your approach to AI and to the commitments that you're making under the responsible AI program? So it's an ongoing conversation, but we're definitely having that conversation. So, Jim, we're obviously talking a lot about AI here, and this is the way a lot of conversations tend to go these days as they relate to technology. But of course, you have a lot of other things on your plate, including some digital equity initiatives. And I want to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to GeekWire, and we will be right back. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop from GeekWire. I'm talking this week with Jim Loader. He is Interim Chief Technology Officer for the City of Seattle. Jim, we've been talking about the U.S. Conference of Mayors and Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell within that organization chairs the Technology and Innovation Committee. And obviously, AI, as we've been discussing, was one major topic there. But there were also some interesting actions in the realm of digital equity, which I know is one focus of your department. Can you give me a sense just generally, overall, what role the city can play and does play in ensuring access to broadband internet for all of the city's residents? We have a number of initiatives that sort of fall under general program title called Internet for All. But for the last 20 years, I think the most the, the program with the most impact that we've managed is a grant program. Uh, that, that we've done. I think I think this is the 21st year, in fact, of our grant program where we take money that the city collects through our ability to franchise cable television companies. And we reallocate that out to community organizations that are committed to helping folks get connected to the internet, successfully use the internet, and get the support that they need for getting online. So this year, in fact, I just... Um, accepted the recommendations of our Community Technology Advisory Board to issue $545,000 of grant funds to different community organizations. And we have support from some of our corporate partners as well to supplement that amount. Uh, So that's um, a a key area where we have a lot of impact on the community. We also have uh, and maintain relationships with the internet service providers in town and Though we don't have direct regulatory authority over internet service providers, we enjoy, I think, really helpful and productive relationships with them in which we can 
share the data that we collect about where gaps in internet access and adoption are most significant in the city and work with them to prioritize the delivery of services to those communities and to those residents. One area that's sort of across the board throughout the city, no matter where you live, that's an area of concern is internet access throughout what we call multiple dwelling unit buildings or basically apartment buildings. In some cases, if buildings are older, they lack internal wiring. Residents, even if they can afford internet access, can't get high-speed internet access just because of that limitation. And we uh, work internally uh, with our Department of Construction and Inspections and other city departments to do outreach to building property owners, property managers, uh, and we leverage our relationships with the internet service providers to just emphasize you need to have the wiring in place in order to offer a competitive high-speed internet service in these areas. And and here are ways in which you can do it. Here are sources of funding. Here are sources of, uh, you know, you don't need special licenses. You don't need special inspections or permits to do this. So a lot of it is awareness raising. A lot of it is relationship building and influence. But, but we do pretty extensive work in that area to try to make sure that everybody in the city has access to affordable high-speed internet. This is very relevant, this role that the city plays as an inter- intermediary of sorts between internet service providers and these community organizations, because one of the resolutions that was passed by Mayor Harrell's committee at the recent U.S. Conference of Mayors was one opposing H.R. 3557, which essentially would have preempted this ability for cities to step in and make sure that these funds or that any funds are distributed equitably on behalf of the city's residents in an attempt to make sure that people have access to the internet. Yeah, the issue of local preemption is a big one. There's a lot that goes into our internet service providers building out of the infrastructure that they need to provide internet access. We we know that. We know it's a it's a big and important and expensive job to string fiber to every last sector of the city. And in in the area of uh, wireless, especially with 5G technology, that requires a lot more electronics and other devices that often have to be built on public assets, light poles, utility poles, or structures that are built in the public right of way. So we've been working for forever, really, uh, with internet service providers to facilitate access to city property and to allow for those builds to occur. On the other hand, we have to manage those assets for their primary intended function, which is to light the streets, control traffic signals, uh, keep electrical wires off the ground, and allow people to walk around the city on the sidewalks. That's also city property that taxpayers fund and frankly own. So we are the stewards of those assets and I think are well within our rights and well within the interests of the public to be compensated for the use of those assets. So local preemption would essentially limit how much we as the city uh, can be compensated for the use of those assets and also uh, would limit the restrictions that we place on the use of those assets to that may create uh, access, safety, other types of issues if, if they're mishandled. And every city is different, which is why local control is so important. Every city has different needs, different issues, different widths of sidewalks, different heights of poles and has to manage those accordingly. And to preempt that even at the state level, let alone the federal level, uh, would just be devastating the quality of life in in our cities. And we have to balance that. 
Jim, it strikes me that this conversation of digital equity these days is even more important because you're not just talking about access to websites or streaming services or even educational websites. You're talking about access to this, to bring it full circle, giant artificial brain that all of us are suddenly able to <laughs> tap into, <laughs> at least if we have approval from our IT department. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it's becoming, uh, you know, it has become, you know, whether we've, we've sort of been conscious of it or aware of it or not, it's, it's become a critical aspect of our lives. And in some cases, people don't have a choice. I mean, I, I remember, you know, attending or going to see a movie a few years ago, you know, in the before times. And parking in a parking structure, not not a city-owned parking structure, but a private parking structure. And the only way to pay for a spot in that parking structure was to download and use an app. Not an app that I happen to already have on my phone. No, a different app for that particular parking structure. So I, I just, as I was standing there in the rain waiting for the app to download, I realized I'm certainly annoyed and inconvenienced by this, but there are people who just literally could not park in this parking spot. Either they don't have the phone, they don't have the data plan that would allow them to do it. They don't have the digital literacy to know how to download an app, uh, you know, whatever the barrier is. And, and of course, I had to pay for that parking space with a credit card. So that opens up a whole other question into people who are unbanked. That's becoming more and more the case. And a lot of us, I think, appreciate the convenience that the pandemic resulted in, in not having to ever use cash again in most circumstances. But we have to remember that that also is a significant barrier for people who don't have access to even just basic internet services or digital skills. You've got a fascinating job, Jim. It intersects with so many interesting parts of the world, challenges. I, I don't know. You've, it's pretty cool. And I imagine challenging. Thanks. Yeah, I, I like it. Sure beats the uh, film studies degree that uh, <laughs> that I ended up graduating from from grad school with. Yeah. Uh, that that would probably be interesting too, but not in the not in the same yeah. ways. Well, it's great to catch up with you. We ought to do this every ten years or so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure there's going to be another issue that uh, that we can talk about coming up in in less time than that. I hope. But I'd love to be back on the show whenever you want to have me. I had a really nice time talking to you today. Thank you. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you, Jim. Jim Loader is Interim Chief Technology Officer for the City of Seattle. See the show notes on this podcast and at geekwire.com for related content and links. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Kurt Milton produces and edits our show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast. <laughs>